0: This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co host, Jennifer
1: L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men.
0: Today's show is brought to you by Strike Club, a brand new line of acne fighting skincare products for guys. The best part these products are simple and safe. They only contain clean ingredients and are non-toxic and paraben-free. Strike Club products are never tested on animals either, making it a great fit for your ecologically conscious young man. Try Strike Club today. Use ONBOYS as a discount code to save 10%. Go to strikeclub.com. That's S T R Y K E club.com. Use the discount code on boys and save
1: 10%. Our guest today is a journalist who has spent over 25 years chronicling the lives of girls, exposing the contradictions young women face in their intimate encounters. Everywhere she went, However, she was urged to turn her attention to boys, which she resisted until Me Too and the declarations that masculinity was broken and toxic. And so she stepped into the opportunity to engage young men in authentic and perhaps long overdue conversations about gender and intimacy. She'd already discovered that American parents talk little to their daughters about sex, but she soon learned that they talk even less to their sons. Her biggest fear going into this project was that guys wouldn't want to talk to her, especially because in her words, she looks like she could be their mom. Welcome Peggy Orenstein, author of Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Peggy. So even though you do look like like you could be their mom, you soon discovered that boys were actually very eager to talk with you about themselves and their experiences, not only about sex, but about porn, casual hookups, and those even bigger questions that we're all thinking about, about race, sexuality, and gender, and their own developing perceptions of masculinity. I'm really curious, who were you talking with? So I was talking to boys who were between about the ages of 16 and
2: 22. And because I'd written Girls and Sex, and I had focused on a particular demographic, which was kids who were either college-bound or in college, I did that. I kind of just transposed that. And that was the same group that I was working with for Boys and Sex. But beyond that... Uh, the net was pretty broad. You know, I talked to kids from all over the country, big cities, small towns, different ethnicities, sexual orientations, gender identities. I just kind
1: of went broad to talk to the
2: biggest range within that group that I could.
1: What preconceptions about boys did you have going into this project? Well, I
2: think the biggest one was that they wouldn't talk. You know, that I thought I would have entire transcripts that consisted of, uh (laughs) uh-huh, nope. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know that scared me
2: but you're a parent
0: you know that those are not atypical responses right That's teenage conversation and, sometimes
2: yeah and but you know at least girls you think well they have a reputation for talking and boys not so much so that concerned me but so what I think the biggest surprise of all of it was how much they did want to talk how eager they were to talk and what insightful narrators they were of their own experience and I think that really just the truth was was that, nobody ever asks boys. And so giving them the opportunity and the space to sit down and really consider their interior lives, they, they grabbed it.
0: It really struck me as I was reading the book, um, you said they were actually quite adept at narrating their interior lives. And they were, you know, reading yeah. the book, some of the self-reflection that these guys have regarding their own actions, their own experiences mm-hmm. in locker rooms, dealing with the man box typical expectations of masculinity, how that's affected them, how it's affected others that they interact with. That's deep stuff. And I think collectively as a society, we sometimes don't expect that kind of self-reflection out of teenagers, period.
2: Yeah. And boys in particular, I think Mm -hmm. we really underestimate them and i think one of the things that was interesting about doing this book really right now and why it was so intriguing to do it right now is that it's a point where boys are wrestling with those contradictions and i really you know i've thought a lot about this some of the things that the boys talk to me about in the book whether it's their relationship well yeah the relationship certainly to to their sexual behavior their relationship to feelings their relationship to consent and lines that they might cross I felt like there were things that maybe if I talked to the same boys or if they could have been transposed five years earlier, Mm -hmm. um, the same guys, I don't know whether they would have been questioning any of that at all.
0: That's a really good point. And I've been raising boys throughout this whole time frame. And I will say from my own experience, and again, anecdote of one, but I talked to a lot of other parents as well, the whole Me Too movement and story after story after story of men behaving badly has encouraged a lot of us to have these conversations. I mean, for one, our kids are getting the news at least as quickly, if not more quickly yeah. than we are. There have been ample opportunities to discuss it and you almost would have to be very willful to not have these conversations at all. We are yeah. swimming in this conversation right now.
2: Right, and I mean, I would say a couple of things about that. One is that despite that, you know the research was showing that guys didn't were, weren't really paying attention um and I, and I hope that that was more true of people who were out of their parents homes you know young adults even though that's not great either I hope that parents are starting those conversations a lot there more
0: there was the other- I want to make sure we bring that out there was a stat that you had in there and if you don't remember it off the top of your head that's yeah, fine but there was some survey about you know how many guys had heard about the Me Too movement and could describe what it was, and I think it was like something like forty-three percent couldn't. Yeah, could not. Could
2: not. Could not. A year after the Weinstein allegations, and it was young adults. It was it was a survey done by Glamour and GQ, so they were looking at young young adults, and it was pretty shocking what they came up with and pretty disheartening. And all that said over there on that on that side of the ledger, I also felt really strongly as I as I went out to talk to boys that it was not just a time. To reduce sexual violence, though that's a mandate. It's also a time when that gave us this opportunity and this kind of little, you know, crack in the edifice where we could engage boys in a more positive way about sex and intimacy and masculinity and gender dynamics, and you know, possibly in a way that we never have before. And that was a really exciting idea.
0: One of the things that stood out to me so clearly, having read your book, is that hookup culture isn't serving anybody well. I know. I know. Like, so you have boys and girls, boys and boys, you have young people engaging in sexual encounters with each other and really
1: nobody's enjoying themselves. Not really. No, it's all the expectations. It's the stories you can tell afterwards. That's where it's it's all based on the good story. Can you get the good story out of it? Yeah but it's all
2: um, false. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, and, and it, it, it's true, it's one of the boys said to me, you know, it's, and he was a pretty, he'd been pretty active his freshman year. And he said, it's like, um, there's, there's not a lot of, it's like two people having very distinct experiences Yeah. and there's not a lot of eye contact and there's not a lot of conversation. And it's like, you're acting vulnerable, but you're not being vulnerable with somebody you don't know very well and don't care very much about. And he said, It's it's odd and it's not really very fun. There's a real perception reality gap in what kids think others want and what they're supposed to want and what they actually do want and how they actually do feel. So, you know, there's there's surveys that show things that 70 percent of kids would themselves like to have a relationship, a loving relationship within the next year. But 80 percent think that their peers only want to hook up. You know so there's like there's there's a gap or they or the uh, the level of ambivalence i've never and th- and this is true across the board if you look at research i've never talked to kids where the conversation doesn't turn into what's wrong with hookup culture <laughs> never
0: that's yeah. where i as a parent see this opening that we can start to intervene and have conversations because i i get it boys and girls teenagers their peers are a bigger influence at this point in their life than their parents, but they do hear what we say, whether they acknowledge it or roll their eyes or yeah. not. So simply you know, bringing forth this observation that like, pretty much nobody is enjoying hook, hookup culture yeah. and it's hurting more people than it's helping and that other kids are even saying where it's really good is when you have a connection with somebody and you can yeah. talk about, hey, do you like this? And make decisions together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And they, you know, I think what hookup culture, if it teaches anything, it's usually what you don't want Yeah. see what you don't want. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's a valuable lesson. I don't know, but I do feel like that that's a, a piece of the book that was interesting to write because it's the only chapter where there's a chapter on hookup culture in both girls and sex and boys and sex, because there had to be, it was, a, it was the one place where, where there was a real overlap, but I also wanted to do it from the two, from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so those chapters really talk to one another and I really hoped, you know, yes, I, I mean, I love hearing you say that as a parent, you thought it was useful and and helpful as a conversation starter. And I really think it's two chapters that young people themselves can read and feel more enlightened about what that culture is about. Because there's there's one scene in boy in in the hookup chapter in Boys and Sex where I talk to a group of kids where there's both guys and girls in the group, and I don't usually do that. It's because I was writing separate books, and they're kind of recognition and revelation about the other sex during that two-hour period, they were just going, wait, what? You think what? Why do you think that? You know? And it was so interesting how, how little understanding they had of one another. And when we finished, they said, can we do this again next week? Wow. Well, you know, I don't live in the dorm, so no, but
1: you you can, go ahead. Yes. Well, and that's to your point, Peggy, is where are we starting those conversations? You know, it's really easy for us to sit here and say, parents need to be having these conversations, but you've told us, and Jen and I know that these are tough conversations for parents to have to begin with. I was fascinated by your speaking to mandated sex education and how sorely lacking it is. And I think that parents think that, oh, the schools are doing this and educating our kids and talking about this. And you said only 10 states require that their sex education programs have to be medically accurate. Correct. I was astounded by that. I don't really have anything else to say about that except, yep. You Um, know,
0: I was not astounded by that. I'm disappointed. I'm horribly disappointed. Uh, Janet knows you might not, Peggy. My background before I moved into writing is healthcare. I'm a registered Uh, nurse by trade. So I write a lot about health and education. And I know that that's the norm. And it becomes this divisive thing in communities. But I have to say, I was pretty proud of myself. I was um, recently appointed to our local school board. And they were pulling together a new class at the high school and they were talking about including this one sexual education curriculum which was not there's better ones out there there are more accurate ones out there and I was very pleased with myself I objected to that and I'm like there's better sources out there and the evidence shows there are better sources out there
2: right and the thing is is that what what has happened I mean and I do think there's a certain there has been some swing away from the abstinence only but it's still really prevalent. It's in more than half of the states. What we've recognized or what we should recognize is that that voice has been very loud that has wanted that yes. kind of curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a voice that puts ideology over our kids' health and yeah. well-being,
1: yeah. over
2: their own children's health and well-being. And that what you, just dem- what you just modeled, which I think is really true, is that the voice of those who know better and who want our kids to have meaningful, connected, fulfilling relationships need to get a lot louder and and there's more of us and we need to get our voice out there so that our kids will get the education but right now you know I certainly wouldn't depend on schools to be giving your kids what they need
1: right so
0: Janet I found a great way to get these conversations going in the house like it's very hard to bring up these conversations yeah the the headlines of men behaving badly help but here's another good one You take a copy of Peggy's book, which proclaims (laughs) boys and sex in really big print, and you buy that book, and of course you're going to read it for yourself. But let me tell you, when this book is laying around on, say, your kitchen table, because that's where you left it, it inspires conversation. (laughs) Peggy, you know the chapter where you're writing about porn, and one of the tenets of porn is that if you are interested in it, if you can think of it, there is porn out there of it.
2: Right. Right. Okay, it's, I left it's called rule number thirty-four. It's some internet meme. If if it exists, there is porn of it. Wow.
0: As an adult, I've pretty much known that for a while. But what I didn't fully expect, leaving your book on the table, was that I would go out to dinner with my sister one night. I would come home to find out that my teenage boys were looking through your book. They saw where my bookmark was. They're like, "So you read that part on anal sex?" And I'm like, "Uh, I think so." And then my fourteen-year-old, who's very interested in snowmobiling because he just is he's like yeah so apparently there's snowmobile porn because yeah he looked (laughs) he looked
2: exactly they do and but that's the thing is that they are and he's 14 right he's 14 because of course they're looking because they're you know because it's there you know of course they would and And then we were able
0: to have a bit of a conversation later i told janet this at night i'm tucking him in and i'm like okay when i google snowmobile porn Am I going to get mostly like pictures of really cool sleds? Cause you know, like, you know, food porn. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Or am I going to see people having sex on snowmobiles? He goes, eh, about 50, 50. Mm.
1: Okay. So it's a chance to start that conversation. Wow, Jen, what a story. And I know that you have more to come and more conversation with Peggy Orenstein, the author of Boys and Sex. Let's pause for a moment. I want to tell you about Strike Club. This is a brand new line of acne fighting skincare products for your guys. Now, Jen has told us that she's also used it too. It is clean and it rinses clean. Strike Club has developed this product with a pediatric dermatologist, incorporating modern ingredients into a proven skin-clearing, non-drying formula. Strike Club makes it simple for your son to take care of his skin. All he has to do is rinse his face and body with everywhere wash when he showers. Try Strike Club today. Jen's boys have already gone through multiple bottles of it, and they still love it. Go to strikeclub.com, that's S-T-R-Y-K-E, and use the discount code on boys to save 10%. Again, strikeclub.com, and your son can have cleaner, fresher skin, clear up the acne and inflammation in one easy step. And now let's go back to our show with Peggy Orenstein. Do
0: you have time for one more story? I think you're both going to love this one. Books on the table. The other night, my two teenagers that are still at home and a friend are at the table. They asked me about the book. They asked if I would read aloud from the book. I said, sure. And I was going to read them this section. Towards the end of the book, it's a boy and a girl in college. They have a sexual encounter that they both perceived pretty differently. And I really think this is important to discuss with our kids. The kid who was not mine was seeming a little uncomfortable with this. So I decided I probably should not go there. He's not my child. It's okay. But my kids were interested, this book was right there, my 14 year old who is very much in that stage of having to impress older ones and Mm -hmm. gain status, man box. He brings out his phone. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out, and you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute. Put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give armoir a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoir A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style That's armoir.style a r m o i r e dot style slash on boys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. He says, hey, Siri, how big should my PP be?
1: What does Siri say?
0: Uh, Siri says, <laughs> I Dude, forget no. how she phrased it. Siri Basically, says. Siri said she couldn't answer that question. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there because I do what I do. I'm like four to six inches. Yeah. You know what, though? If but wait, have- it gets better because then he Googled, you know, average penis. And it's like four point something flaccid and five point something erect. Mm-hmm. And then then he found out that circumference, you know, girth is four inches and everybody's like four inches. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And I'm like, <laughs> then they started asking me if I had a tape measure. And I'm like, I don't know where the tape measure is. But- I love your house. <laughs> <laughs> you would love being here the other night. But my, uh, one of mine had a belt that he had just taken off. And I'm like, well, use the belt, like measure off four inches and see what, what that is. We had a hands-on math sex ed lesson at my kitchen table, measured off four inches, made that into a circle. Oh, yeah, that's measuring not as big as I thought it was. And <laughs> then they started like measuring other things on the table, like the circumference of the, the uh, top of the salad geometry. dressing. You gotta right? Geometry. You got it. Right? There you go. We had geometry. We had math. We had sex ed. And I guess what I'm really saying is it's not that hard to have these conversations with your kids. If you're willing to be a little silly, have things out there, let them know like, I'm not going to back away from it and neither am I going to jump all over him because he was trying to be silly when he talked to Siri the first right. time. But you know what? There's a real question there.
2: Yeah. Right. That was so smart. And, and also speaks to how skewed kids' expectations and assumptions are if we don't get in there and tell them what's real and what's not. Because basically when you're not doing it, the school's not doing it, and they have this unprecedented access to porn mm-hmm. that's sex ed. So if you're not talking to him about this, and if you're not saying, you know what, the average penis is actually just barely, you know, five and a half inches, whatever it was, they're thinking what they're seeing in porn, and they're looking down at their bodies and thinking, uh-oh. And that sets off a whole train of thought. I mean, that's, that's what's happening is what they see is what they believe, even when they say they don't. Right. So if you're not getting in there and having that silly conversation and interrupting that, and then he goes and he, you know, that goes outwards to his friends because he says, hey, you know, that's crap what you're saying. Yeah. And okay. guess what I did last night. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderful.
1: So Peggy, I want you to talk about the word hilarious. Hmm. This was very interesting the way, and parents, our listeners have probably heard their sons talking about a meme or something that was hilarious. But this word can serve as a vehicle for many, many things that our parents need to, our listeners need to perk up their ears when they hear their boys saying that something is hilarious. Yeah, because hilarious
2: is very much, it's a deflection. Right? It's the way that it's what boys use. It's always a safe space, right? If you are, if something is disturbing to you, if it's upsetting, if you're not sure how to react, you know that you can be safe as a guy. You're never going to be targeted. You're never going to be seen as challenging those rules of the man box if you default to hilarious. But what hilarious also does is it's another way that separates boys' heart and their heads because it undermines compassion. If you think that the subject of that hilarity is funny, and in fact, it's something that's violating your morals or your ethics or you know it's wrong, then it's forcing you to distance yourself. It's forcing you to not know what you really know. And it's subverting compassion. And in the kind of far end, what I was seeing was that those high-profile rape cases, like in Steubenville, Ohio, what the boys said was they thought it was hilarious. They thought they were being funny. And that's not harmless at all. And then. It's also not harmless when it becomes a stance of bystanders. So when guys see somebody doing something, bullying or um, violating somebody and they don't step in because people go, hey, that's really hilarious. You don't have to do anything then. There's Mm -hmm. no problem.
0: I think this is so important and at the same time so nuanced because I think there are for instances where boys will use the word hilarious Because it's, like you said, it's the safe thing they can say where, you know, more heat's not going to come down on them because you're calling it out in the moment. I don't necessarily think that it always means that they don't have compassion because often it's there but they don't feel like that right. is a safe moment to express it. it.
2: Exactly. So what does that mean? Exactly. It's, it's and that's great, a
0: scary place. It
2: subverts it is what I mean. That is yeah. a scary place. And so it, it, it offers a kind of distance. And what what makes something funny that violates our morals? The reason it's funny is that that it has to be both, it has to both violate your morals and seem harmless. Mm. That's what makes it funny. So if you are, you know, if you if the subject of the joke is a violent sexual, something that, that mixes violence and, and, and sex or is degrading to women, you have to see that as simultaneously v- violating and harmless. You have mm-hmm. to disconnect from identification mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? And what happens when that carries into the real world then? That's the, the trouble with hilarious. And if you, you w- don't want somebody to disidentify with seeing... woman degraded or abused
0: this is where I struggle as a parent so many other parents I know struggle and I feel a great deal of compassion for our tween and teenage boys right now because our cultural expectations are changing and evolving I think in very positive ways we are trying to say everybody deserves respect and sadly that has not always been the case so we have Children who are like caught in this place in time where they still see bad behavior is rewarded.
2: The yes, guys
0: the guys who do these things who say hilarious who often treat people terribly they can become president.
2: Yes. 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 But I think, you know, I think a couple of things about that. You know, one is there is also a huge cost to clinging to those. Masculine norms to those rigid norms that we we can document. So, I mean, one thing is in terms of the hilarious. I think that's a really interesting section for boys themselves to read and think mm-hmm. about, I and, agree. and what that means. Mm-hmm. And and that whole section also talks about the struggle boys are uh, undergo around speaking out in those situations and how hard that can be. And you know how we talk to them about that. You know, one of the boys that I talked to, whose name was Cole, was telling me about trying to speak out in a locker room and being mocked he and a friend tried to say something when Mm -hmm. when some boy said something uh, that was you know gross and then he stopped speaking out and his Mm -hmm. friend continued and he said he watched while the other boys kind of marginalized this other guy and didn't like him as much and didn't listen to him and he lost all his social capital and cole said i was just sitting there with buckets of social capital but i wasn't spending it and i don't know what to do how i don't want to have to choose between my dignity and my friends but how do i make it so i don't have to choose?" And, and that's a really profound question because Michael Thompson, who's a, um, a psychologist, says that it's in that silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny that boys become men. So what boys can't say, what they won't say, what they don't say is as important as anything else. But and, but and, I think right now is a time again when boys are looking at that in a new way and struggling with, with it in a new way and trying to figure out needing support. In how to disrupt some of that behavior, and and they do see that it's rewarded. They will see that it's rewarded in many ways until hopefully someday it's not. But we also know that guys who cling to those rigid gender gender norms, yes, they're more likely to harass. They're more likely to assault. They're also more likely to be the victims of violence. They're more likely to die by suicide. Yep. They're more likely to be depressed. They're lonelier than other guys. They're more likely to binge drink, get in car accidents, die. You know all these things. So there is tremendous cost to that man box and staying inside of it, as well as we can't lie about the possibility of rewards, but those rewards come at a cost to boys themselves, men themselves, and to their romantic partners, and at the moment to this country.
1: We talk about having the sex talk with our kids, many of them along the way, and to what you're saying is having those talks about what it is to be a friend, what it is to be in love. And back to our earlier comment about mandated sex education in this country, we're not talking about those things. We're not talking about being vulnerable, being in relationship with someone else. And so that is also at the forefront for parents to be having those conversations from the time our boys are little what is it to be a friend how do you stand up for your friend at the playground in the sandbox when they're little absolutely absolutely and there's so many
2: messages we can give kids. and with boys i also think when they're little i know i don't think we need to broaden their emotional spectrum Mm -hmm. so saying to boys you know wow seems like you're sad that must be really frustrating. Making sure that they have an emotional vocabulary and that they connect to that is so important because everything is going to push them away from that. Mm-hmm. And and boys in particular say that they girls too, but boys definitely say that they want to hear about the emotional side of relationships and sex. You know, the sex ed in schools, if they do anything, even comprehensive sex ed, it's about risk and danger, right? Yeah, it's about reproduction and trying them. You know, telling them not to get pregnant. And not to get a disease. Right. And that is such a small s- slice of what human relationships and human development are about, that even if they are getting that, they're not getting
1: nearly enough. Let's talk about the role of dads in all of yeah. this. And you you said that fathers are the gender police. They say are. More about that.
2: So boys will say that the source of restrictive masculine norms is their parents and especially their dads and what was interesting to me about it was that yeah i had guys who would say my dad told me to man up or don't be a little bitch or that kind of thing but a lot more of the guys would say things like a guy on on the west coast who said to me yeah my dad wasn't sexist you know my dad's not homophobic he didn't teach me that so-called toxic masculinity but i did learn the emotionally stunted side of masculinity from him Because he wasn't the kind of guy who would talk to you about emotions. He was more of a sigh and walk away kind of a guy than a guy who would ask you how you were doing. Mm -hmm. And so I learned not to have those conversations from him. So there are a lot subtler ways that boys get, you know, that the message gets communicated to them from their fathers, as well as from their mothers, but from their fathers for sure that the role of a guy is to put your emotions behind a wall. And that, as one guy said to me, the only things you're really allowed are happiness and anger. So whenever adult men can sort of think about that themselves and be compassionate listeners to their sons, can speak with connection to their sons, it makes an enormous difference. And I I know it's hard because it's not how this generation of men... I mean, one of the things that was really, that would kind of make me laugh in a not funny way was that...
0: um, Hilarious? Yeah, it was hilarious.
2: (laughs) That... They would talk about their fathers and I would be thinking, yeah, yeah, I really get that. I really get that. I I know that's what dads are like. And then I would think, wait a second, I'm thinking about my dad's generation. You are talking about my peers.
0: Yeah, your generation. You are talking about our
2: generation generation of men. And in my head, I was kind of moving it up a generation to my parents' generation because it was so hard for me to believe that they were talking about the men I know. I thought our men, the men we know, weren't parented that way either. And it's and it's risky for them. One therapist of men just recently said to me, Stop saying vulnerable. Start talking about emotional accessibility, because men can that doesn't scare them as much. And I thought,
0: huh,
2: maybe. I don't you know. You know,
0: that's that's a good point. Isn't that interesting? It is. And I do think that we all, especially we w- the three of us are women, you know, do need to be compassionate and empathetic and understanding. The, the men who are parenting today, the men who are grandparenting today and teaching, they did not have this kind of support. No. And they they may have been hurt, limited, and harmed by it, but of course you spend your whole life not acknowledging that, because right. that's painful to acknowledge. And how do you
2: make that change to become a, uh, once you've chopped that off in yourself? I mean, that's what I felt like at the heart of this book so much was boys wrestling. They're still at this age where they're wrestling with that. And they were wrestling with vulnerability, with with the taboo against it, with embracing it, with capitulating to it. And when we cut people off from vulnerability or emotional accessibility, it's not only cutting. it's, It's a fundamental human need and trait. But Brene Brown says it's the thing that is essential to human relationships. It's the secret sauce. And so we are denying them or reducing their capacity to be in the kind of mutually gratifying relationship we want them to be in. So adult men, they're already there. What do you do? Well, you have to be brave. You have to step out of that when you can, and you have to recognize that you don't have to do it perfectly. And you don't have to do- Baby
0: steps are okay. Yeah. You
2: don't have to do it right the first time. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know all the questions. You don't have to have the perfect relationship or be able to talk perfectly to your own spouse you have to take one step just one step with your son and have one of the conversations that i lay out at the end of boys and sex just pick one and just enter it or like you said put the book on i'm really a big advocate of that leaving the book on the kitchen table it's gonna start quite you know conversations. It's got to. It's, it has boys and sex and sex and high letters. That's larger than an
1: erect penis. That's a conversation starter. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> got <laughs> It is hilarious. It is hilarious in the right use of the word hilarious. <laughs> I am really curious
0: what you have learned about boys and society's concern for and conception of boys since you've published the book now that it's out there in
2: the world i mean one piece was what i just said and and how much of i hadn't really recognized how much of the book was about their wrestling with vulnerability and i actually did a word search on amazon of vulnerable in the book and it's like constant it's a constant source of discussion whether they're talking i mean even when i said earlier today um that the uh the boy who was talking about hookup you know, hookup culture was saying, it's like you're acting vulnerable, but not being, being vulnerable. Like right there, I thought, wow, you know, they're wrestling with what that means. So that was a big thing. Another thing that I've been thinking about more recently is the notion of miscommunication mm. that we talk about in sexual assault. And, and I think that that's the wrong word. And I think that what we really need to maybe move that towards is the phrase false assumptions, mm-hmm. because I think what happens often oh. is not, that somebody is not communicating their what they want or don't want. It's that the way that boys are socialized leads them to make false assumptions about what's going on. And, and so so whether it's that guys have a tendency to, especially when they're drunk, which is a big thing we need to talk about with our sons, the impact of drinking on boys' perceptions in hookup culture, in sexual relationships. But especially when they're drunk, they tend to see any act of friendliness on the part of a girl as meaning. It's on. Not true. They tend to see the space where something happens as meaning it's on. So I ask you back to a dorm room. That means it's on. Not true. They tend to see consent to one act as consent to everything. Not true. You know all these things, and and so it's it's why I I always say that I think that of the Me Too allegations, in some ways I think the one that really lands with ordinary boys and one to discuss with them is the Aziz Ansari case. I think that that was irresponsibly reported. So, you know, you have to put that piece of it aside. But I think that it lays bare some very, because it's not illegal, because what he did was not illegal, it was not egregious. It lays bare a lot of very typical gender dynamics Mm -hmm. of a guy who is thinking of himself as a good guy, but is seeing a girl's limits as, you know, he's just over eager, he's doing what guys do, he's pushing because that's what he learned, and seeing girls limits as a challenge that he's supposed to overcome to get what he wants. And it's a really interesting thing. And that's what's interesting to me, too, in terms of the second to the last chapter in the book, which goes through a case of assault from two perspectives, the guys and the girls, and and moves towards a restorative justice resolution. But what's so interesting is watching as the evening progresses and turns into this, what he thinks is a bad hookup. What he thinks is, he's just, you know, what he said was, I thought I was just being a teacher and helping her. Learn because she wasn't very experienced about how you have oral sex with somebody. Well, that wasn't what he was doing. He was forcing her to have oral sex. He was pushing her, holding her head down against her will. And that's what she was experiencing. And he just didn't even see that. And so his recognition of that and reckoning with that and how that sort of shatters his self conception, but then he puts it back together again in a much healthier, really wonderful way in the end is a really important story arc.
0: You know, we um, have talked in the past with a gentleman named Ryan Wexelblatt. He specifically works with ADHD and boys with ADHD. But he says that one of the challenges boys with ADHD have is perspective taking. And Mm. I think whether your son has ADHD or not, a lot of boys do struggle with perspective taking. Frankly, historically, they didn't really have to consider other people's perspectives. Being women. Yeah,
2: they didn't. And now they do. That's what, that's fundamental change. Now, then thank goodness for it. Yes. But it means that the way we raise boys has to change. It means that their understanding of other people's perspective has to change and they have to take into account because otherwise, A, they're going to cause harm and not even realize they have. And B, then they might get actually brought up on charges and have to face consequences for that harm. They should also be decent people. Yes, they should also have ethics. And that's why, again, you know, it's not just about legality. Um, Shafia Zaloum, who's a, a health educator who wrote the book Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between, which I think is absolutely a foundational text for parents and teenagers on sex. So good. Really gives you discussion points and scenarios and all these things. It's wonderful. But what she says is that sex should be legal, ethical, and good. And I think that's such a wonderful way to think about it.
1: The participants are mutually enthusiastic and agree. Yeah. yes. Yeah. I want to thank you for the perspective
0: that you have brought to this conversation for elevating boys' perspectives and bringing them into the conversation. So often we talk about boys and we don't listen to them. So thank you yeah. for listening to them. Thank you for sharing this information so that we can all
1: help our boys grow and thrive
2: thank you that means so much to me
1: peggy thank you so much for being with us today i know you've thank been you. really busy since your book came out and we have so enjoyed this time together and thank, thank, you. thank you too for as jen said shedding light and giving us hope and thank a path forward thank you it's my pleasure <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode at onboyspodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, please share this podcast with your friends and even your community groups and schools will benefit from knowing about this resource. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.